Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Anyways, Back to the Godfather. We have decided that we're going to do mini-sodes uh, in the month, all about Film Club, just because they make our main episode a little bit longer, and maybe, I don't know, I personally feel like I get a little burned out and tired by the time I'm reading people's reviews at the end, so we want to give them their due diligence and have a separate episode for them. However, we will be announcing the next Film Club pick at the end of this one so stay tuned for that Ooh. but we'll hop right on in this is an episode that I brought up last year I think just kind of on our like general list but then uh recently Lauren has been obsessed maybe that's a strong word <laughs> has rewatched Snow White and I don't know just kind of brought it back up to the the forefront of our minds so we're going to be doing the first of I think three episodes, but the other parts will probably be not this year. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> anyway, this is In Defense of the Disney Princess, part one. So I uh, have always been a big Disney fan. Not necessarily always been a big princess fan, though. It's only recently in the last, like, five, seven years that I feel like I've come to appreciate the princesses for who they are. And I've since then become frustrated with how most people view them or how I used to view them or how society paints them as very, I don't know, one-dimensional, one sort of personality and just blanket statement applies to all the princesses. So we're going to talk about what the common complaints are for the princesses and then what we see kind of refuting most of those typical um, opinions and then give our takes on each of them. So we're going to start with the first five princesses. We're going to go in movie chronological order. The princesses were always my favorite when I was a child. Like, the princess movies were the ones I would watch over and over again. And I didn't even know that people didn't like princesses <laughs> until, like, I think I talked to you about it once. Or you were talking about your Facebook argument <laughs> with someone about Ariel. And I was like, what? People don't like the princesses? <laughs> like, are you serious? I have a lot of good points for them. Excellent. We need that. <laughs> I know it's it's funny growing up in a house full of girls. I would say that the vast majority of us did not really ever connect with like the traditional princesses per se. Like Elizabeth and Catherine were very much into Pocahontas when it came out. But talking to like Annie, she's like, oh, whenever I was watching a Disney movie, it was like the rescuers. And like, yeah, it just wasn't much of a thing in the household. Not that it was like we weren't allowed to watch them. Maybe it's partly, I didn't have any sisters, and so I grasped onto that, like, a possible, like, someone to be a sister yeah, in my the, mind. Yeah. Makes sense. A girl that I could relate to, or, I don't know. Yeah, no, that, that I follow that for sure. Another so, girl in my life. <laughs> you went to an all-male school. <laughs> I had no friends. <laughs> So for each of the five princesses that we're going to do in this episode, we're going to do a little background into their history, then do common complaints or inaccurate social uh, takeaways that people have had for each princess, 
And then we're going to kind of rebuttal against those arguments and in defense of the princesses and what we can learn for them and then our own take on each one. In doing this, I don't, I just want to maybe slightly alter people's opinions. I'm not necessarily asking all of you to drastically change and go out and buy all the merch or whatever. I mean, it doesn't even come to me <laughs> in that Disney paycheck, but, uh, you don't get a cut. Yeah, <laughs> this is not sponsored by Disney. Um, but just a, maybe like a second consideration for each of these princesses. I do want to point out some valid caveats before we get started that, yes, many of these stories are outdated or depictions of women are definitely rooted in the time that they were created in. And that most of them are created by primarily male animators and storytellers. But we are going to talk about the females who lent their voices to each of the princesses and that there are a lot of societal depictions that are inaccurate um and that the disney princesses represent a very specific standard of beauty that i don't think it should be measured across the board so i'm not saying that disney princesses are the end-all be-all of role models or fictional characters to take inspiration from i'm merely stating that i think people give them the short shrift and and they should be given a second thought. So we're going to jump all the way back to 1937. With Snow White. As the historian, I'll, I'll just do a little history blurb and then we'll jump right into it. So obviously it's the first full-length animated feature film. Um, in America, there's like some debate about Germany and other stuff, but <laughs> uh, this was supposed to be Walt's folly. Everyone was deriding him, thinking it wasn't going to be great. He put all this money into it, mortgaged his house, all these things. And it was a huge success, an overnight success, and everybody wanted to go to it. And it wasn't seen as, seen as this like children's show. Like all the celebrities went to it, everybody went and watched it. And it really is the launch pad for the studio and eventually Disneyland and the studio that we know today. So Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the film, is like hugely, hugely important. So if you call yourself a Disney fan at all, you do have to lend some credence to where it all started. And of course, we have Adriana Casalotti is the voice of Snow White. Um, and she was actually the first female voiceover artist to become a Disney legend in 1994. She died in 1997, so she was still alive for that. But how she got the part, she overheard Walt Disney talking to her father about the role and was like, I want to audition for that, and basically landed the role as soon as she auditioned. Um, there is some uncomfortable history where Walt Disney owned her voice and she like wanted to go do other things and because of the contract she couldn't <laughs> like appear in other movies or anything like that so um but she could still do the voice for a long time she re-recorded some of the the parts at age 75 which is just bonkers to me but good thing she never smoked <laughs> <laughs> but uh she did pursue a little bit of a career in opera so good job Adriana and of course, this kickstarts the golden age of Walt Disney animation, which will last until World War II. So we'll go ahead and jump into the complaints of Snow White, which I know Kenneth has at least one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> today I was talking to Andrew about this podcast and he was like, 
That's my impression of Snow White. <laughs> yeah, her voice is just pretty high and squeaky, and her the singing voice is just very different, very in the time, what was beautiful. That's mm-hmm. not not beautiful anymore. Lots of warbles. <laughs> Lots of vibrato. So we talked about her singing voice. Mm-hmm. Some people think that she's weak or too girly. Uh, they complain that the the whole movie is just about falling in love and that's the only goal that she has and the goal of the whole movie is the happily ever after is that she found the prince that she met one day and and they're in love yes and i should note here that some of this is just kind of what i've heard throughout my life but i did do a flame tree poll about like the worst disney princess and they would give their reasons so some of this is polling Disney workers, Disney cast members, excuse me. Gotta get the... the Ooh, (laughs) take that out. (laughs) So, all right, so in defense of Snow White, and just, again, this is historically groundbreaking to have the first animated feature, and the lead is a female. I think that's noteworthy that we have uh, a woman who is leading the forefront of this historical film, where often many of the historical movements in film are featuring men and have men as the the leading character. So already Snow White is off to a good start in my book. I think it's important to look at the reality of her situation because a lot of people are like, oh, she just longed for a prince and is just, you know, singing about it. But when we break it down and look at it, here she's, it's not super clear the relationship. And you've seen Snow White more recently than I have. The queen is her stepmother. Yeah, I feel like it's similar to Cinderella where it's her stepmother and her dad has died. Okay. But she knows she's a princess, question mark. Obviously, she would have had to if she knew her dad at all. Yeah. But somehow, she's forced to be like a maid of sorts. Then she's legitimately almost murdered by the huntsman, (laughs) which is just wild. (laughs) And then she's forced to abandon all that she once knew and goes into the forest and is alone and lost stumbles upon a home and does what she knows you know if she's lived this life or she's been forced to cook and clean and in order to find like some sort of comfort and stability of course she's going to revert back to the skills that she has if she's found this place to stay like she's not just going to bum off and and you know freeload she's going to try and earn her keep. So I think a lot of people are just like, oh, she just likes to clean and cook. Well, like, that's literally been her life, you know? Um, that's her her comfort. Yeah. Um, comfort action. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that, like, if she's too weak, she's too girly, like, uh, she hasn't been able to know anything else, like, just because of how life has been dealt to her, you know? Yeah. About her being weak, like, what exactly is she weak? The only time I can think that she's weak is when she passes out in the forest. That's relatable to me. (laughs) Like, when it's so terrifying, that's a scary forest that she's in. And also, it could be symbolic of this trauma that she's just dealing with, that her she finds out her stepmother wants her dead, and she's almost died. Mm-hmm. And so she's running away, and her world is, she can't go home. Her world is crumbling. Yeah. And that she's facing these fears, and 
passes out. Like, yeah. that's what I would do. Exactly. And, like, not even just that her stepmother wants her dead. Like, she was all, she came this close to being murdered. And, like, in a gruesome way, her stepmother wanted her heart in the box. Like, so intense. <laughs> and um, she's 14 years old? I mean, it's never explicitly stated in the film. So, like, that whole, like, how old are the Disney princesses? Unless it's, like, specifically stated, like, like in Sleeping Little Beauty. Mermaid. Yeah. Then I'm kind of like, eh, meh. So, but yeah, she's young, obviously. She's not a grown woman. Right. <laughs> also, these movies, they're made for children, right? Like, that's Walt's, the animation. I, well, so this movie was not. This was made for everybody. Like, oh. it was not marketed as a children's film. It's, like, those didn't really exist because children couldn't, like, hold their attention span for that long. Like, children had small animated shorts, which is what Walt did for a long time. But this was for the family. This is for everybody. But definitely not marketed as, like, because it, it's intense at parts and scary and, like, not, like, horror. But for 1937, some of the stuff it does in... I'll get to later some of the more, like, film-making aspects that I love of Snow White. But a big part of what Disney did, and I think still tries to do the company, is to create these, like, family films that can be enjoyed by everybody, but are not children's films. Anyway, there's, like, a big discussion about how animated films are slightly disregarded because they're only pushed off as children's films when they can be so much more. So... That's a discussion for another time. Things that we've learned from Snow White, I think, uh, in rebuttal to, like, how she's too weak, I think it's because people don't really value the traits of kindness and positivity, and they see those traits as weak, and instead of being like, oh, I I have no emotions, or I'm not going to show my emotions, or I'm going to, like, fight through it. And so I think that's more of a problem with, like, how society views the quote-unquote strength of different traits because as we've been saying Snow White goes through like such a a huge trauma and then what does she do when she's surrounded by the animals and scares them she's like oh I like need to to process this and work through it and she doesn't say in those those you know exact words but she she says in that song that she sings right next, she says, you're the one who can fill the world with sunshine. And so it's like definitely encouraging a personal responsibility in crafting positivity. And I, Snow White personally was one that I had a really hard time being like, she must be a good role model. I was always like, Snow White's annoying. She's to this, to that. And someone in the Disney History Club loved Snow White. And I was like, okay, break it down for me. And she was like, I went through this very dark depressive time and Snow White and her like commitment to positivity just like really turned things around for me and that's where I like started to see oh like she is a strong character even though society doesn't view her as such but she actually brings a lot to uh, like a, a role model level being that I think a lot of people disregard. She's very emotionally resilient. Mm-hmm. She also demonstrates kindness by taking care of the animals and the dwarves that come into her life. And it also teaches, like, that kindness can be taken advantage of. So 
you know, she was too kind with the old hag and took the apple even when she was, like, creeped out by it. And so, you know, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, and we'll get to this later, but princesses who make mistakes and we can learn from their, their follies or their missteps as well. Well, yeah, the reason she took the apple is because the witch told her it would bring her true love. Oh, that's right. I forgot so about it that. wasn't, it wasn't really being nice. <laughs> tempting her with what she wanted. Which, was... yes. Which, to talk about that, this is a, a big theme for a lot of the princesses that we're going to talk about. The one that they end up with, their true love, often isn't necessarily just about, like, getting married or living happily ever after. Like, for a lot of these princesses, their true love represents what they ultimately want. Like, the prince is an escape from her life, is a maid, and is an opportunity to, like, rise and escape from this hard life she's always had. So I think that's, like, more complicated, or more nuanced than people necessarily believe it to be. She was Uh, very nice to the old lady, though, the witch, because she, like, pretends that she's dying, (laughs) and she's like, oh, come inside, come inside, I'll help you. Don't want you to die. Yeah, she's not going to get cursed by a, an enchantress. <laughs> For being selfish. <laughs> um, we also learn from Snow... Oh, she also knows how to f- have fun. Like, she does a, a good dance or two. It is later copied scene by scene by Maid Marian. Um, and Snow White also teaches us about food safety. <laughs> Washing your hands. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, she's not a pushover. She mm-hmm. makes the dwarves wash their hands before they eat. It's true. And they try and trick her, and I would maybe have been like, eh, okay, you can eat. But she's like, no, get yourself to that sink. Exactly. She's not weak. Who are these fools? That's the thing. They've never seen a movie, obviously. I was going to say, for a lot of the people that are like, this princess, blah, 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 I'm like, when's the last time you've watched it? And they're like, uh, and I'm like, exactly. <laughs> um, so about that singing voice, there's a little historical context to it. It actually was starting to get out of vogue, that like type of singing by, this, by the time this was released. Um, so even at the time, it was a little bit like not as popular the style. A little bit hard on the ears. Mm -hmm. But I was reading this one professor's take on it, and it's very operatic. And um, he points to how Walt really liked to bring more of this, like, highbrow or classical sort of music into uh, digestible uh, forms for the public, which is very clearly seen in his attempt with Fantasia, where he's trying to bring classical music to life in a way that has never been done f- before and that largely failed unfortunately but I just like that was pretty consistent with how for his first film he went for this more operatic than like the Tin Pan Alley bluesy you know kind of the the more common not to not to like downplay that those are a lesser kind of music but to just bring more of like a high highly trained classical approach to it is her singing voice the most beautiful of all the princesses? No, absolutely. I'm not trying to argue, like, her voice is amazing, and it, it totally can get annoying and on people's nerves, but I think there's more reasons behind uh, why they chose to do it than it just being, like, a random choice. So, take that, Kenneth. <laughs> I don't think he cares. <laughs> um, another point for Snow White, she's a Christ figure. 
It's true. She is, first of all, we talked about her being so kind, but then she dies and she's resurrected. Yes. Um, so moving on to our take that's in defense of Snow White. Now we're going to just kind of talk about our own personal thoughts on her. The actual movie of Snow White is very entertaining. Like, I'm not going to say that it's the best Disney film, but every time I've watched it, I'm like, you know what? This is not as painful or difficult to watch as I expected it to be. Like, the Evil Queen is a great villain. The animals are fun, even though I know you have strong feelings about the mistreatment of the turtle. Oh, he's so sweet. <laughs> but this is the, the multi-plane camera, which is so important for animation history where they have different layers of background animation that the camera is able to, like, physically go through, which is just incredible and amazing. Like, if you want to know a history of animation, this film is so, so important. I loved watching at the end when the lightning is going, like, how did they animate that? It's so cool. And when you think about it being the first animated film and just all the techniques and the new things that they would have to try and do, also all the sight gags, uh, there was this big thing of, like, all for all the animators, if you wanted to, you could pitch these different gags and to, like, make them have it be made into the movie was such an honor. And, like, when Walt first pitched everything to all his animators, he acted out the entire film, and there's all these these pictures of him, like, making these grotesque faces and doing different voices. And so it's definitely a movie that you shouldn't poo-poo or, like, put aside or knock and I think if you haven't seen it in a long time it's definitely one you should revisit as for Snow White herself boy do we have tea on her (laughs) (laughs) so I don't remember I think we were watching it in preparation for our Disney trip and it just struck me how involved she is with Grumpy and this is we could we could have a whole other podcast episode about this alone but the true romantic story is not Snow White and Prince Florian. No, no. It is Snow White and Grumpy. If you watch the film, you'll pick up on the details. It has been confirmed by topiaries. And oh my gosh, I was watching Adriana, the voice uh, character, the voice actor. She had like this home tour because <laughs> she has all this Snow White memorabilia. Oh, and on her table, role. yeah, on her table is a statue of Snow White kissing Grumpy on the forehead. So, like, confirmed. confirmed. Um, we didn't get an actual confirmation from Snow White, but, like, she's got to keep up appearances, you know. But truly, the hidden secret behind all of it is Snow White and Grumpy. I think when she died, that part got, like, erased from her mind. So that's <laughs> why when she woke up, she was like, oh, yeah, I'll marry the prince. Mm, but they, they don't ever actually have a wedding. They just kind of ride off into the distance, so... So Grumpy could move in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So Snow White, an actual gem. Any other last words for her? Her biggest reason for being awesome is that she's friends with that turtle. <laughs> you have it. <laughs> All and right. I really, I love the new Disneyland ride that they have revamped. Mm-hmm. I, I will give you, a, give the listeners a plug to go to Disneyland and ride oh, I want to go so fun. All right, we're jumping forward in time to Cinderella in 1950. This is, of of course, post-World War II. During World War II, uh, there was a big animator strike, 
and actually they housed a lot of the army at the studios. So production on animation really took a halt. And this is the first time they really re-enter the fairy tale genre. And it was, of course, a massive success and kind of rebooted Disney animation. Eileen Woods is the voice actress. She became a Disney legend in 2003. Uh, when she got the part, she was asked by some of the animators, like, I don't know, people who knew her, to record Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. And so this is love, kind of just to hear them, how it would go. And then later, like, Walt personally asked her to do it because he was just so enthralled with her performance. And this, of course, kicks off the Silver Age of Disney animation. All right, on to the complaints of Cinderella. Some people think she's boring or plain. They don't like that she cries. Who said that? Someone at work, they're like, all she does is cry. And I, I was fighting with her so much that night. I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. Everybody cries. <laughs> I know. That the movie's all about love once again. <laughs> people are so- Who hates love? <laughs> such a hater these people so in defense again we're gonna look at the reality of the situation so first of all her mother dies when she's very young then her father dies and then she is stuck with abusive relationships so abusive with her stepmother and her stepsisters she ultimately accepts her life but isn't like again she's not a pushover she keeps like her wits about her and her sense of humor and then she sees this opportunity to go have fun and to go enjoy the night for once, which is the ball. And her stepmother gives her extra tours to do, so she can't do it. But her friends are able to make the dress for her. And then they rip it up, her step family rips it apart, and everything is gone to naught. This one, like, kind of last hope that she had. And then, of course, her fairy godmother comes and helps her achieve this dream. And she goes to the ball and dances with a handsome man. And that's kind of it. Like, people, I think, forget that she wanted to go to the ball to, like, enjoy herself and have fun. She wasn't going to find the prince. Like, she didn't even know that she met the prince. She wanted to go because everyone else is going in. Yeah. She didn't want to be left out. Right. Like, <laughs> like, she always is. So yeah, if this like one dream that you have and everything is constantly being taken away from you and you're this close to achieving it and the people who continually put you down take that away from you again, you're telling me you're not going to cry? Like and and why is it so bad to cry too? Like I think a lot of this is pretty revealing of the way that society just puts down feminine traits and qualities as they are and I don't think we have to like necessarily label or gender traits, but things that tend to be more um, associated uh, with femininity are treated with more disdain, I think, which is not cool. Cinderella is like- okay to cry, as Barney said. (laughs) (laughs) Take it from the purple dino himself. (laughs) But yeah, when you watch Cinderella, she's like snarky and has like a, a good sense of humor she yells at her alarm clock, which is a, a big <laughs> bell tower, but, you know, I I can relate. I love that she wakes up at 6 a.m. Like, <laughs> I needed, when I watched it most recently, it was when I was working 7 to 7 for every shift, and I was getting so tired of waking up at 5.45. 
And then I watched that and I was like, okay, Cinderella did it. Like, I just have to wait 15, 15 more minutes earlier than she does. Like, I can do this. Role model. <laughs> yeah. Like, not very many. Usually, the princesses wake up when they want. <laughs> it's true. Right, but it's like... It's interesting, Snow White and Cinderella seem to have very similar stories. Similar in, like, uh, background, I think, but the actual characters are pretty distinct and different from each other, you know? Mm-hmm. Because, again, I think, I feel like Cinderella is a little bit more grounded. I don't know. She just seems to, like, be a little bit more sure of herself. I also really love how this movie, and Cinderella in particular, really demonstrates the power of dreams and faith. Like, Johnny, the old Disney Club president, loved Cinderella and talked a lot about how, for him, she was such a, an important figure of faith, where it was like her because I think fairy godmother says like your faith brought me here or like something along those lines right because I because she's like crying and then fairy godmother comes and anyway but he just always was talking about how like Cinderella did everything that she could she had all these extra tasks she worked so hard to get them done and she has done so much for these mice and bird friends and they pay her back and then like it was like after all that she could do it still wasn't enough and then her faith allowed for this miracle to happen oh she's so sad Nothing, my dear. now you don't really mean that oh but i do nonsense child if you'd lost all your faith i couldn't be here and here i am oh come now dry those tears <laughs> you can't go to the ball looking like that the ball oh but Good thing she is a sweet old woman. <laughs> this time you learned that old women are not all bad. <laughs> That's a takeaway. <laughs> Some old women give you nice dresses. <laughs> yeah, so Cinderella has always kind of, there. I think Fairy Godmother says, like, even miracles take a little time or something like that. And I don't know. It's just something that I cling to. Very spiritual. Yeah. And Cinderella is very much a figure of endurance. Perseverance, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's also just so kind, like, to little animals that don't get food or any... She helps them out. She gives them cute little clothes. She, When Gus Gus is sad and scared, she helps him. It is possibly my favorite, like, still of the entire film is Gus Gus in the cage, naked and, like so afraid it's my favorite (laughs) yeah so moving into our take that's in defense of cinderella i just have to state that walt's favorite piece of animation was the dress transformation scene and it is a good one but also according to oh my disney.com cinderella is your best friend so that needs i never knew that yeah, you did. <laughs> I know. Oh. Just the way you said that sounded like you were revealing something to me. Revealing stuff to our listeners who may not know. Oh, um, I forgot they were there. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think um, the live action, which is probably the only Disney live action that I can stomach, does a really good job of pointing out something that was already there in the original, which is Cinderella's Um, courage and kindness that like have courage and be kind which are two incredible strengths that are absolutely important for everyone to have and 
definitely demonstrated by Cinderella. We don't have any interesting theories about her yet, but someday. Here's one. So when she's leaving the ball and everything like kind of falls apart, her pumpkin breaks, she doesn't cry then. It's true. Yeah, because she's not like she's always crying. Amen. She's not, she's not like going to cry at everything. It was this pinnacle moment. Does she cry when she gets locked in the tower though? I would get upset about that. I mean, that's, I want to cry when I watch it. (laughs) Her stepsisters and her stepmother are so mean. They're so mean. And how could, so how did she learn to be kind in that environment? Because it's it's true, but her father, because she, there's like a, uh, at the very beginning, a still of them. And she's like old enough. Like, I think she was raised by her mother and father. I don't know when her mother died exactly. But but still, it's amazing to be surrounded by these horrible influences and mm-hmm. still maintain your integrity and your to not kindness. Grow, to not grow bitter. Yeah, like, like, you know, usually when people are abused, they take the abuse out on someone else. Like, mm-hmm. she would be abusing the animals because mm-hmm. that's her outlet. But she doesn't, so she's a good role model. Yeah, Cinderella is fantastic. Cinderella, not as fragile as a glass slipper. Which also props to her for dancing in a glass slipper, because woof. (laughs) All right, jumping ahead only nine years, we are introduced to Aurora in Sleeping Beauty in 1959. So this is still. In the golden age, we're in the glittering success of the 50s. She's actually the only, oh, Mary Costa is the voice actress. She's the only one of the original three princesses who's still alive. <gasps> That's exciting. Um, you can still meet Mary Costa if that was a life goal. Yes. <laughs> she auditioned and was called personally by Walt, but she had a very impressive career in operas. She actually was in Candide which is very exciting. Wow. I know. So Mary Costa, what a dream come true. She was in 44 operatic, can't read my roles. (laughs) I was like, tales, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) 44 operatic roles and became a Disney legend in 1999. So Sleeping Beauty was this like massive uh, film that they poured a lot of money into, largely for the watercolor background by Evan Earl, and ultimately it was a flop. It did not do well in the box office. And this is actually one that I I had seen Snow White and Cinderella growing up, but I don't think we even owned Sleeping Beauty. Oh my gosh. I know, it was a long time before I'd actually seen it. And Aurora was one that I fell into the complainers a lot of the time, because it, she only gets... 18 minutes of screen time and she only has 18 lines so I was like Aurora's just boring so anyway take it away with the complaints well I don't want to talk about her (laughs) I'm mad about what you're saying no because I have a change of heart this is how I used to feel but I've had a change of heart um complaints all she does is sleep has no personality and she's boring like what you said yeah but that's not her fault because she is, she has limited screen time. So, at from the get go, 
she has a lot going against her. So I don't think that she should, you know, be faulted for that. Let's take a look at her reality. So she was cursed as a child, lives with her aunts, quote unquote, has a bit of a uh, whirlwind romance, not to a stranger because they had met before. And then... Oh, (laughs) I'm just realizing that they had seen each other when she was a baby. (laughs) Yeah, that's the whole... Once That's upon a dream, what Once Upon thing. a Dream was. Yeah. <laughs> I was always like, oh, she dreamed about him, whatever. But she actually had, because, like, you, met- can't, you can't dream someone's face. It's true. Unless you've seen them. Oh! <laughs> so then she, she, of course, thinks that she um, is not taken seriously by the, what we know to be the three fairies is clever enough to realize that something's kind of afoot in her living situation. But then, of course, she is told that she has to go, that she's the princess, which is a huge reality shift and a complete lifestyle change. And it would be overwhelming. isn't even real. Yeah, would be very overwhelming to anybody. And I think when she meets Prince Philip, he's this kind of exciting break from her normal life. She was excited to, like, actually have a friend, and that was taken away from her. So as she's back in the palace, she is entranced and ends up pricking her finger on the spindle, which that is, like, some of my favorite scores. I love Maleficent's evil music. Oh, so spooky. All right. So that's her reality. Now, she was given gifts as a child, which were the gifts of beauty, song, and then a way to reverse the curse. Um, And I think that for a long time, I I was just kind of like, oh, Aurora's just beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And then I, this is where my change of heart came in, was I uh, had the chance to be friends with her, as it were, for a story time. And so spent a lot of time studying her and, and it was so fun to just embrace beauty and in a way that wasn't, like, stuck up or show off, but just to kind of, like, fully embrace, uh, like, being beautiful and as one naturally is and not to be, like, vain about it or insecure, but I don't know. I think Aurora is just naturally graceful, but, like, not in this show-off-y peacock way, and I think it's something that we all need to have a little bit more in our lives is just, like, oh, we all are naturally beautiful just by virtue of who we are as individuals and to be comfortable and okay with that and again not in a way of like I don't know I just think that concepts of beauty are so often about comparison and instead just like naturally letting it be as who you are I don't know I was just surprised at how much I learned from spending those few moments with Aurora in those 18 minutes how important and impressive the um confidence in in one's beauty is yeah when I was just barely trying to search through to refresh myself on her I was like she's not in this movie at all it's all about the fairies Mm -hmm. they're kind of the main characters because they're so fun and Mm -hmm. they're like the comedic relief and they can do magic which is so cool but the story's about Aurora like she's the the center she's why everything's happening Mm -hmm. she's who Maleficent's taking everything out on the innocent child and then um her the parents are making arranging her life for her and 
that's my other favorite scene is Scumps. I I didn't say this before, but this was my favorite movie. Really? From like age one wow. to probably age nine. My mom, one time I was helping her, she was folding laundry and like she handed me a little bundle of towels or something to take to my room. And I said, maybe I gave her a bundle. And then I patted the top and went last chance. And she was like, what the heck? And then later she was watching Sleeping Beauty and they're like going to make the dress. So they're getting out all the bundles of cloth. And then Fauna says, or Flora, the main fairy. Is, is that Flora? The orange one? That's, yeah. Flora. Flora. Yeah. She says, this is our last chance. And pats the, just pats oh the top gosh. of the fabric. You've been so quoting like, films from, since your birth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this was one. And then later, like, I didn't watch it for a long time, but I was babysitting a little girl who was watching it. And I was, like, singing the entire score. <laughs> just, like, I hadn't seen it in, like, 10 years. And I could sing the entire score because I'd seen it so many times. So, uh, who cares if she's not in the movie so much? Like, it's such a fun movie, and she has, she's, has these qualities enough to make an impression. Like, she's only in the movie for 18 minutes, but the movie's still about her. Like, we still like her. The, we call her the main character. Mm-hmm. So, uh, maybe you don't have to go and kill the dragon yourself. Like, you can still be special, even if you're sleepy. <laughs> and I think, yeah, another thing I'd written down about kind of in, in rebuttal to some of these attacks on her. She's very authentic. Like, she she speaks her mind, and she's frustrated when people don't listen or, or take her seriously, which I, I think is a very relatable experience. This story is also, as we're kind of going into our take, the story is about those who love and protect us, and that's just as important to recognize and appreciate and value as inner qualities of Aurora herself, which I think do exist and are to be applauded, but I love that it's not just about what she does. It's about those who, like, really love her and want the best for her and to take a moment and realize those people that are in our own lives as well. Um, And it's worth noting that we kind of have our first rounded-out male lead in a princess film because... Prince Florian doesn't even technically have a name, the Snow Prince. And then Prince Charming has a bit more personality, but that isn't really fleshed out until some of the sequels. (laughs) (laughs) He also doesn't even go to find her. Yeah, just the Grand Duke. But he does yawn. The true love story. Oh no, I can't get behind that. The Grand Duke (laughs) with his monocle. (laughs) I can get behind Grumpy, but I don't know if I can do. <laughs> can you? Part of the reason that they didn't have Prince Florian in it so much is they couldn't draw a male lead <laughs> super well. So that's why he oh, does like, he looks like, so weird. weird. <laughs> but obviously they'd improved by Prince Charming's time. And, and the dwarves they could draw because they were caricatures, obviously. But... <laughs> this is really jumping back to Snow White, but when he hops over that wall, that is so terrifying. <laughs> You're gonna I hate- remember watching S- Sleeping Beauty, and when Prince Philip comes around and starts dancing with her, I was like, whoa, 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 you <laughs> take a step back, boy! I mean, I, I like that because he's hot and smooth and 
oh no I'm like do not touch if you have not introduced yourself <laughs> no definitely and uh I guess this kind of gets into the whole consent thing as well which obviously consent is very important and don't go around and kiss you know sleeping women but this is not a normal story this is a fairy tale this is about curse breaking nobody's gonna actually encounter this in real life so the consent thing doesn't apply here so obviously well, yeah. and consent at that is point he had already met her and she had decided she wanted to marry him that's true all right so aurora do not sleep on sleeping beauty she's actually a pretty great princess and now it's time for our sponsor story this episode is sponsored by Disney Parades. Oh, how And that's just because I wanted to put in videos of us screaming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, when I would go to Disneyland as a child, that wasn't like a huge uh, priority for my family to see parades. Same. Huh? Yeah, it wasn't for us either. I really only developed a love for parades when I wanted to be in entertainment. Oh. Yeah, it's more of a, a recent obsession. But what about when you made me watch... Well, anyways. <laughs> um, I do remember seeing the block party parade at California Adventure when I was a kid. We have a picture, I think, of me with Slim. <laughs> Amazing! I'm In so jealous! Yeah, that's the but, thing. Uh, like, We would probably watch parades when they would come by, but like, we're not the avid... like. When is the parade? We're coming here for the parade. No rides during that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, since when Rachel and I have gone, we just kind of go bananas and like lose <laughs> all sense of anyone around us and just scream and yell and lose our minds. That's um, true. <laughs> and then we go back and watch the videos because Rachel wants to take a video of every character and then we're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> We go crazy. But yeah, so I don't know if the Main Street Electrical Parade was a sponsor story before, but obviously it has to go on here. But I, that is the one parade that is like legendary in our family. And partially it was because we had the music like on a CD growing up, but mm -hmm. I love that parade so much. And I made you and Maddie and Spencer watch it with me. And that resulted in some very memorable moments that were recorded <laughs> on um, video. I guess I can tell the story of that. Um, we had, Maddie had taken videos of it and um, she was, I think it was the next day we were driving from somewhere else and we were stuck in traffic and Maddie was just like looking through videos and she sent one of the videos of the parade to her family and her family was like, that's really fun, but who is that that's screaming in the background? <laughs> And she's like, what? And she had not even listened to it, just like watched it without the sound. And we listened and it is me scream. You can't even tell what I'm saying at first. We had to listen to it like five times for me to translate what I was saying. So we'll put that video on and you can see if you know what we're saying. It is so iconic. But then even more recently at the parades this year when I've gone with Rachel since they brought the parades back, and it's so exciting that the parades are back. Yes. We just kind of go a little bit crazy. Yes, we've been parade deprived, but we we get so excited for all the characters. And for me in particular, I am Ponchito's hype man from the Three Caballeros. 
And I like Jose too. I'll give him a shout out every once in a while. But whenever I see Ponchito, I go so hard for him because nobody knows who he is. And the man can pull off a pink vest like no other. So he's got to be celebrated. So I have many videos of me just screaming at Ponchito and he's always so touched. So I don't think I'll have room to put all your videos with Ponchito. <laughs> make a separate post. <laughs> But it's true, I will watch the parades with other people, and I still like be excited and get into them, but it's only when I'm with you that I like lose all sense of decorum and <laughs> any sort of self-aware social cues. So But the characters love it. We get great interactions. So Yeah, they I think a lot of the parade people are just like <laughs> <laughs> You couldn't see my face, listeners, <laughs> but kind of a bored stare off into bleary eyed. Yeah been burning and baking in the sun all day <laughs> but so anyway thank you disney parades for sponsoring all right we'll get back into the princesses all right moving 30 years into the future yeah that's, that's right we had a, a princess drought a 30 year gap which is i believe the biggest one what about maid marion so i i should have clarified at the beginning these are the um official disney princesses there's like a, a merch line like a oh they've like had an official declaration of who counts as a princess and who doesn't and in our last episode we will talk about who we think should be added to the canon of the official i guess marion isn't really a princess anyway she's a lady yeah well and see even that is kind of a, a loose term because we will be talking about uh disney characters who count as disney princesses but technically aren't princesses like mulan all right so jumping to 1989, this is The Little Mermaid, and Ariel is our leading lady. We jumped past the Bronze Age. Of course, Jodie Benson is the voice of Ariel. She was originally on Broadway, and at this point, they wanted to find someone who could both do the speaking and singing parts of Ariel, and so she was kind of the perfect fit. She has voiced Ariel for everything. So anytime you see Ariel in, there's like an animated series, any of the sequels, that's Jodie Benson, which is pretty incredible because a lot of the the voice actors do not stick around for some of yeah, the... Yeah, uh, good for her for coming back, I guess. <laughs> um, but she became a Disney legend in 2011. She played Princess Ada in a video game, so... I thought I loved Jodie Benson, now I absolutely... Julia did not want to be in the video game. <laughs> um, and fun fact, which I didn't write down, I actually have sung with Jodie Benson. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. <laughs> we um, all know. <laughs> she also has done voiceover work for Lady in the sequel, Anita in the 101 Dalmatian sequel, and Belle, because... Paige O'Hara's voice changed too much, apparently. So, in a House of Mouse special, I believe. But she is also known for voicing Barbie in all the Toy Stories. And, of course, Little Mermaid is the bringing together of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, which were really important for the Disney renaissance, which, of course, the Little Mermaid kicked off. So, enough about the history. Let's jump into the complaints. Um, complaints include too young, too rebellious, selfish, 
idiot teenager slash brat. <laughs> Only about love. Again. Yeah, people are real harsh on Ariel. So let's let's take a look at this. Ariel's reality. She has an undeniable curiosity and thirst for knowledge. She is shamed and belittled for these traits by her father. Once she discovers more of a human world, she finds Eric, and he's just like a nice side benefit to the whole thing. She turns to Ursula after her father literally destroys her treasure trove, something that she's been working on and building up in secret, and that is like a huge part of her identity. And the it's instant- the only thing she cares about. Yeah, she the doesn't instant- even care about her beautiful voice that everyone else cares about. It's true. The instant he finds it, he destroys everything in it. And she, like, doesn't go seeking out Ursula. Their Fossum and Jetsum lure her away. But yeah, so she she's in this emotional state, you know, maybe doesn't make the best judgment calls, but she's been living her whole life with this uh, father who has such a prejudice against humans. And in the end, uh, she does sacrifice a lot for what she believes to be of most value for her. So I think a lot of people see her as like whiny and nonsensical and I think they really see it as like she just wants to be with Eric when it's like no literally the movie sets up her love and quest for the human world before she's even laid eyes on Eric before she even knows that he exists so the whole like daddy I love him it's not the reason she wants to go to the human world (laughs) I think a lot of people are like part of your world comes before she even sees Eric exactly oh my gosh it drives me crazy they only bring it up because of the statue. <laughs> <laughs> but she's become infatuated with Eric at that point. So, of course, that's what she's, that's what her argument's going to be because she's obsessed with him. Right. As a teenager would be. As we all are with Prince Eric. And, and I, she sees him and his dog. And he's so kind to his dog. How could you not be infatuated? He is. And he's like not obsessed he sees the the present and he's like very obviously not into it he's like yikes but yes she's into eric but also eric is this representation of achieving her dreams and goals so it's not just it is infatuation but it's not solely this like teenage girl crush and she sees him save his dog from the fire i just realized that (laughs) she witnesses that it's true and she saves eric She she's a strong, independent teenage girl who will rescue a man. Yes, she's strong and capable. She rescues Eric. And then there is this important reconciliation that goes on between Ariel and Triton. I think people grew up and were like, oh, I'm totally on Triton's side. Who is this girl? Blah, blah, blah. But Triton is really to blame in a lot of this situation. Triton's like, not the best father. He is, has not been the best parent Obviously, they don't have a relationship where they can, like, openly talk about stuff. So, yeah, he ultimately drives her away. Does Ariel make the best decisions? No, I'm not saying that, but I don't think that she does it purely to, like, spite him or rebel against him. Like, I think she's truly going after what she wants to do. Um, In defense of Triton as well, he didn't have his wife. And not to bash... Ariel didn't have a mother. Not to bash single fathers, but, and, but yeah, and, but that can be really difficult to have a teenage daughter. And, like, he's so protective of her, but he doesn't know how to convey that. There And there is a, a prequel where you find out that Ariel's mom is killed by pirates, so that's why he hates humans. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
I don't think I've seen that one. <laughs> it's not worth watching. <laughs> kind of like the Cruella movie where they, the reason she hates Dalmatians is because her mom was killed by a Dalmatian. Oh boy. Oh boy. We're not talking about that. Strike, <laughs> strike that from the podcast. <laughs> Are you going to put a long beep there? <laughs> Only against thirst. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, Ariel shows us that you should dare to dream and dare to chase the things that you want to do and really put action to that, which is faith. Faith is belief and action coupled together, which Glenn Keane was the leading animator on Ariel and talked a lot about how he saw this, her as like a, a symbol of faith and a belief in something that seems impossible, but having faith that it, it will all work out. I really like Ariel. I don't think she's perfect. I don't think she's like the most amazing role model to have, but I also think that a lot of people bash her for reasons that they don't fully understand or comprehend or that are... Yeah, I think it's just so hard that these people... I mean, adults wrote this and it's not a real teenager, Mm -hmm. but they're judging her as an adult. Mm -hmm. They're not taking into account that she's... Her brain isn't developed all the way. Yeah. Her little mermaid brain. (laughs) is a teenage mermaid brain, and she's gonna make mistakes. Yeah. And And I think some people say, like, oh, that's bad for our kids to see, like, the rebelliousness. But, like, I think it warns you pretty well, like, there are consequences for signing, selling your soul to the devil. Like, (laughs) yeah. And I also think, like, oh, there's consequences to parenting that is very authoritative and, you know, doesn't mm-hmm. allow for honest conversations or, like, true listening. King Triton doesn't listen to anything Ariel's saying. He instead just gets mad and, and blows up over it. And yeah, this is largely why I once got into a Facebook fight over <laughs> if Ariel is a role model or not. <laughs> and why do our female leads need to be perfect to be a role model? There are so many male role models that aren't perfect that people just don't even bat an eye at, and there's kind of this double standard. Heroes can be flawed. Ariel can make a mistake and still be a role model. You know, she has this reconciliation. She realizes what she's done is wrong, and she, at the end of the film, she's not rebelling against King Triton, right? Like, they've kind of come to an accord. She's kind of given up she's watching Eric, and it's King Triton who has this moment of reconciliation and and recognizes what he can do and needs to do, and ultimately allows Ariel to pursue her passions while still being able to love her and have a relationship with her. But yeah, I think it's important for Ariel to teach us that it's okay to rebel against things that um, don't seem fair or seem restrictive, and to be bold, to speak out, and to take action. And I think especially for women, that's important for that, you know, often we're told all of our lives to be submissive and and to not speak out and to kind of do as you're told. Do what you're told, yeah. And so for Ariel, not to say like, oh yeah, go rebel against literally everything your parent tells you to do, but no, just like, hey, you have a thinking brain and you have action, You, you know, you can put your thoughts to action and that's what you should do. And Ariel is such a break from these first three princesses that really allows for future different princesses to exist as well. So even if you don't necessarily like Ariel as the character, 
you need to recognize that she breaks the mold in a lot of ways and allows for there to be a variety of princesses. I think it points out the power of a female voice and Ursula takes advantage of that and takes that away from Ariel and Ariel doesn't realize the importance of what she's giving up but it should teach all of us that women have strong and important voices and they deserve a spot at the table and deserve to be heard. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Jumping ahead only two years we are introduced to Belle in Beauty and the Beast. This is, of course, continuing the Renaissance and another Howard Ashman, Alan Menken duo um, and would be their last, unfortunately. Howard Ashman would never get to see Beauty and the Beast realized, but wrote the lyrics. And Paige O'Hara lent her voice to Belle. She was selected because she had a very similar tone to Judy Garland and they really liked that her tone was very distinct and specific. Um, she did play Belle in the sequels, but later um, her voice had changed too much. And so for some other Belle work, picked like Jody Benson or other actresses, although she did lend her voice in Ralph Rex the Internet when Belle came back. She's also made a Disney legend in 2011, along with Jody Benson. And the, probably a, a very important thing about Beauty and the Beast, which we have mentioned on this podcast, is that it was nominated for Best Picture. So, a, a, yeah, yeah. A big, important historical moment for animation, animation history. All right, moving on to the complaints of Belle. Oh, I can't even read them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Fine, I'll read them. Stockholm Syndrome. Stupid. Rude to the townspeople. But they read to her. Okay, I'll stop. You can't be defending. Just read the complaints. Overhyped and boring because she's too perfect? Question mark. Okay. So let's break down the reality of Belle. We're just going to completely ignore anything that has to do with the live action film. We don't know what happened to her mother. She lives with her father in a town that she feels very alone in. Um, She doesn't have any real friends. She feels like much of an outsider in the way that they treat her and also her hobbies. She ultimately sacrifices her freedom for her father. She stands her ground. She doesn't back down from the beast, even though he's an actual terrifying creature with a temper. Only when he starts to change his attitudes and behaviors does uh, she kind of see who he is really, truly, that beast isn't malevolent. But yeah, I think it is pretty pretty telling, like, as Mrs. Potts points out, she loses her father and her freedom and is able to maintain a lot of spirit and curiosity and strength of character despite having such a traumatic change, much like her predecessor, Snow White, before her. Yes. It's funny because I love Beating the Beast so much, but when I watch Beating the Beast, I'm so annoyed by Belle sometimes. <laughs> really? Yeah, she's... Well, you already know. I already, I get really like, oh my gosh! Like when she's pulling the beast away to dance, when she's- and she like puts his hand on her waist, like she's very forward. Also, when Cogsworth is like, it's time for bed, and she's like, oh well, you know everything about the castle. Why don't you show me around? Like flirting to get what she wants. <laughs> 
Like, come on, I've never, I've never read that as flirting. <laughs> or flattery, whatever it is. Oh, okay, okay. And then, this is the biggest. I know that it's true that the Beast had been really rude to her, and maybe she was trying to rebel against him in this way, but he specifically tells her, don't go to the West Wing. That's the only place you can't go. She goes straight there. Like, where's her sense of personal space and boundaries? Those are the one boundary he gave her. And, I mean, he probably should have specified, like, this is where I sleep. Like, it's really, like, dirty, and I'm really embarrassed if you go in there. So <laughs> please don't go in there. And then maybe she would have been more polite about it. But I just get so many, I just... I can't stand it when she's going into the West Wing. I'm like, no, that is his private place. He can run of the castle. So disappointed in her. I just have to say, I am shocked at the complaints that are coming out against Belle. I was never expecting this. Yeah, Belle. I don't under, I don't really know why. I'll be honest. I, of all the princesses on this list, I think I would, I currently am having the most, the most trouble with Belle just because I think... She is so beloved, and I, I do really like her. I think she just is so many people's favorites that I'm like, well, there's other good princesses, too. But I am having strong reactions to your reactions, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the last, my last complaint about her. When they finally, after she's run away, and um, Beast comes and saves her, and somehow she brings him back. She's the strong, strongest princess. She is legit. She bench presses. <laughs> She pulled the beast onto her horse somehow. <laughs> Maybe he was Felipe passed was out. Scoot, scoot. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't totally passed out and he could like kind of get on by himself. Anyways, unexplained. That's one of my uh, so favorite there... <laughs> scenes. Is just like whoa, Belle is so buff. Somehow, there's a few times I can't remember, but there's other things that it's like whoa, Belle is strong. Disney theory: Belle is stronger than Gaston. <laughs> Um, so when they're arguing about, like, you shouldn't have, I wish I could quote it word for word, but anyways, he, he says, you shouldn't have gone the West Wing, and she goes, well, you should control your temper, like, she changes it, she completely changes the subject to, like, not accepting what she did was wrong, she's saying his, I mean, which he is, he does have a temper problem, but that's not what they're talking about right there, they're, he's trying to talk about why she made him so mad, and she flips that and doesn't accept responsibility for her actions. And I think that's a flaw. Okay. Valid. So here's, here's what I'll say. Um, about, I mean, I actually have always loved how Bella so, was so forward with the Beast because the Beast is stepping into this new world that's very foreign to him of chivalry and kindness. And so he's really at a loss for how to do much of this and so I think she's guiding him and how to dance but also like she likes him and so like it's okay <laughs> you know like we don't need to exist in a world where only men can make the the romantic moves and uh, oh as far as the West Wing goes I would 100% agree with you if Belle was an invited guest but Belle has been forcibly like I, okay Maurice was forcibly locked up and Belle is taking his place as a prisoner, I am very much okay with the way that she rebels and is interested. And also, I think Belle has this insatiable curiosity 
Um, she's very bookish. But she says, like, my first night in an enchanted castle, and you don't think I'm going to explore every bit of it? And yes, like, curiosity killed the cat, whatever. But she's going to be in, there's this this magical force that is calling her to the West Wing. She doesn't know this bedroom, but she finds the rose. Like, that's the reason he doesn't want her in there. It's not because he doesn't want her his bedroom. But I just, <laughs> like, you know. It, he doesn't say that. The they way never that, say that. Well, yeah, but that's the whole reason. He he goes and he puts the glass back on because that's... Because she's about to touch it. Yeah, that's his life force. He doesn't want her to to mess with the, any chance of escaping his beastdom. Well, I always interpreted it that that was his spot in the castle and that he didn't want her to... No, well, I mean, it's, it's where he's brooding. It's where they he he's ashamed of, of his monster's form and so he doesn't want her to see that he is anything else that he was ever once human yeah and he should have been more clear about that that was his and it's bad i think uh once he gave her kind of free reign of the house she she sees this moment as an opportunity to claim her space as her own and to say i might as i might be a prisoner here but that doesn't mean you control every aspect of my life. I don't know. I don't have as much of an issue with the whole West Wing thing. It also gives us some fantastic score, so. Oh my, that's my favorite score. (laughs) I thought Transformation was. Just that moment in the West Wing where it goes, when she's looking at his picture frame, and it's the high violence going, (laughs) You could listen to that one on repeat. (laughs) All right, back into our original complaints. (laughs) Addressing Stockholm Syndrome. So this is something that uh, develops when there's an abuser or a captor and the victim develops positive feelings towards them over time. And it's a coping mechanism. It's often coupled with nightmares and insomnia and flashbacks and difficulty trusting other people, which doesn't really describe Belle. Is she in a captor situation, yes, but it's not a coping mechanism. She really only starts to develop a relationship with the beast when he becomes more of his true self and kind of lessens some of the whole captor aspects of it. And she doesn't have these other like clinical Stockholm syndrome uh, side effects going on as well. So obviously she's also, she's not been captive long enough to I think develop Stockholm Syndrome. Like I think she's Yeah, they they fall in love after like three days. Yeah, I think she's very much in control of her own faculties still. So there's no it will put the lotion on itself here. Thank heavens. That was the oh science of the lamb. <laughs> I don't think there's any Stockholm Syndrome going on inside. I know, I'm just land. that was just more of like a, a true captive abuser situation. but i appreciate the whole the things that she teaches us about beauty found within not only for her like for the beast obviously is the really clear example of this where he's so hideous on the outside but can be something more on the inside but i think it also really applies to bell where the townsfolk really only see her and try and pigeonhole her into this bell of the town, you know, this beauty. 
um, but they don't really appreciate or understand who she is on the inside, which is equally, if not more important. And same with Gaston, who appears to be this hunk of a man who is really just such a, a turd on the inside. <laughs> and nice LeFou, thank you, LeFou, who, as we all know from the Beauty and the Beast sing-along, seems to be the villain sidekick, but actually mastered the He's whole He's behind romance. the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but the true villain, as we all know, is Chip the Teacup. No, He's Chip the Teacup the is the Christ figure we talked no, about. No, I, I will not stand for that. He's the worst. <laughs> because of Chip. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> the beast could be resurrected. Um, so, yes. Uh, she demonstrates a lot of courage and um, how to rise above the expectations of others. I think we can all take note from. Here are the other things I love about Belle. She loves her dad so much. Mm. Like, she's she's such a good daughter. She'll do anything for him. Like, that's the only thing she cares about, really. I mean, she also longs for adventure, right? But, like, that's what's most important to her is... Because, like, she's found this adventure, right, in the castle, and she's fallen in love. She doesn't... I don't know. I don't think she's quite knows what to do with that because <laughs> this isn't a man. <laughs> but... <laughs> But she'll leave that adventure to go back to her dad, back to her old provincial life, just to take care of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he loves her so much, too. Um, so that's a um, different take than Ariel with a single father, an example of how a relationship should be between mm-hmm. a father and a daughter. Yeah, because Belle, Belle totally confides in him at the beginning, where she like talks about her insecurities and how she feels lonely and is able to be heard and understood and she doesn't even question replacing herself at the at the beast castle where i think maurice honestly has good points where he's like no i've lived my life like i'll just die here it's fine but you cannot give I'm yourself old, Belle. but she won't hear of it so um and the other thing she shows us that you can say no to a guy. Like, mm-hmm. if, if there's a guy that's pursuing you, that wants to marry you, and you don't like him, you feel iffy about him, you can say no. Yeah. And maybe even if he's threatening your family, you can say no. <laughs> <laughs> that is one thing. Even for her dad, she will not bend to that. She's also not exactly presented with that decision because she distracts Gaston, so he forgets all about that. Right. And That's doesn't true. make her make the choice. We really Whereas, did sit there for a minute and contemplate. <laughs> <laughs> Why did she do that? <laughs> well, I was trying to think, like, no, she just wanted to prove that her father wasn't insane. I think, like, that was more important than having not having him go yeah. away. But it was just, like, proving it. Yeah, sanity. it hadn't really sunk into her for her what he was trying to do. I think. Yeah. She was just like, oh, yeah, my father's not crazy. We can just make this go away. Because <laughs> he's not crazy. Right. This is the first male villain to a Disney princess, though, which is interesting because we had mm. Snow White with the Evil Queen, Cinderella with Lady Tremaine, Maleficent with Aurora, Ursula with Ariel. So this is the first time we've had a male villain. Woman versus man. Which I think kind of for the rest of the princesses except for Rapunzel will carry out to be all male because we have Jafar and Jasmine, Radcliffe and Pocahontas, 
um, Sean Yu <laughs> and mm. Mulan, Dr. Facilier and Tiana. So it's kind of interesting to see the switch. Yeah, the shift in protagonist versus antagonist and genders. But yeah, this is kind of a another instance of who saves who. And, you know, Beast does save Belle at one point, but Belle ultimately helps Beast recover. And then it's not really the Beast saving Belle at the end. Belle necessarily doesn't, like, stop Gaston. I mean, she kind of does, but not physically. No, Gaston kills himself, essentially. Right. But, um, On accident. But I think her returning to the Beast, she had a moment to leave, and then her showing, like, no, you're worth coming back for was enough to give him the strength to keep fighting Gaston. So in a way, she does save him. So there's just, like, this whole, the princesses are the ones that are always saved. Not true. She demonstrates um, a permission to be bookish and to be studious, which Ariel also does, I think, this thirst and quest for knowledge. But I think a lot of girls really connect with the specific instance of reading and being different, and that's okay, and can be normalized or can be accepted as just being yourself, even if other people don't accept you. So, yeah. That's all I have to say on Belle. Anything else for you? No, I do love Belle. I just, I think it's because I love the Beast so much that I get jealous. <laughs> Adam. But I don't know why I don't get jealous of the other one. I mean, I feel like you've watched Beauty and the Beast a lot more than the others. Maybe more it's... Often, more recently. More recently. It probably rivals Sleeping Beauty as your most watched princess film. That's true, because I did watch Beauty and the Beast a lot as a child, too. But yes, I hope that these instances, these looks into the first five Disney princesses have given you pause or a chance to reconsider that these aren't just simple one-dimensional characters and beautiful dresses, but that they have personality and things that they can teach us and inspire us with and that are important to um, a lot of girls and women everywhere. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing or look down upon. So hooray for good female characters all around. Again, these don't have to be your only role models, and I don't think they should be your only role models, but you don't have to be so negative about them. So stay tuned for parts two and three that will, again, probably not surface this year, but we'll see if we have an opening in the, in the uh, schedule and if we can't come up with other ideas, or if you're all just clamoring for part two. <laughs> but, you made um, it through the end of this one. Yes. Now I'll go ahead and give that reminder um, that we're going to have that Pride and Prejudice mini-sode. So if you haven't watched it or submitted your response yet, this is your sign to go watch Pride and Prejudice. And uh, I will be announcing June's pick, which is Summer of Soul. It came out last year. I have actually not seen this, um, but it's on Disney Plus and I'm very excited about it. So it is direct is quest loves. It's quest loves film. So enjoy watching that. And but just remember um, to send us your thoughts on Pride and Prejudice and be on the lookout for how Pride and Prejudice connects to Summer of Soul, which you haven't even seen. Which I haven't seen, but I know enough about that I was able to find connections. So okay, <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth, PJ. <laughs> For now. Such a question mark <laughs> ending. <laughs> All right. Drunky King Triton. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh so much. Guys. <laughs>